Well, today begins part 24. This is the 24th sermon I have preached in the book of Judges. Um, and uh, we are coming near to the end of this book. But if you are joining us for the very first time and you're like, oh man, I just came in chapter 24, or 24 of the sermon series, let me briefly let you know what's been happening. Uh, Israel... They're in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. Moses leads them out. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Then Moses hands things over to Joshua. Joshua leads the people. The book of Joshua, it's about the conquest of the land. They go in, they conquer the land, almost all of it, but not quite all of it. Part of that answer is revealed in Judges chapter 2. It was to test the subsequent generations that would come after to see if they would be faithful and obedient to God. And of course, they're not faithful and obedient to God at all. They they settle, they grow complacent in their faith, and they, and they compromise. And the story of the judges is this ongoing cycle of sin in which the people of Israel just get deeper and deeper into sin. And then the Lord will raise up foreign nations to oppress them. They'll cry out to God for help. He'll raise up deliverers, and the deliverers will help drive away the foreign threat, and then everything will be good for a while, and then Israel will fall back into sin all over again and just repeat the process. Each time they just get deeper and deeper and deeper. That's what we've covered in the last 23 sermons. So, part 24, we begin in chapter 17 of Judges. There was a, a man, chapter 17, verse 1, there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you about which you uttered a curse and also spoke in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son. We could literally stop the story there, and it's like, this is such a warm, encouraging story. Just, just right here. We don't even have to go further. We just stop like halfway through verse 3. It's, it's great. We find out Micah stole a bunch of money from his mom, but he felt bad enough to let her know that he was the one that stole it. So mom, here's the money back. Mom says, you know, blessed be the Lord. I'm going to dedicate all this money to God. And then in the very next breath, notice what she says. To make a carved image and a metal image, now therefore I will restore it to you. And what we see here is this example of this merging, this combining of different religions. It is this syncretistic statement, right? The, the blending and combining of different religions. And that is so much what happens in the story of the judges. You might use the phrase, you want to have your cake and eat it too, right? Where we're still worshiping God, but we're going to worship all these other pagans and idols. Right? So I want to have one hand here, right, with the Lord. And I'm going to take my other hand and there. And that's very much what's happening in this story, what happens throughout the book of the Judges in most instances. That's why, like, Micah's mom doesn't even miss a beat. She's like, yeah, we're going to, blessed be the Lord, we're going to give this money, we're going to dedicate it to the Lord, and then we're going to make a carved image. It's like, those don't fit together. But that's part of the issue in this day. 
Well, let's keep reading for a second. Verse 4. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod. This would have most likely been some type of like clothing or vestment, religious vestment, and household gods. And then ordained one of his sons who became his priest. Notice verse 6 because I think it really captures the essence of this day. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Micah and his mom, I think, are totally serious. They're totally sincere in their religious expression, even though it's totally pagan. And I think as we'll see throughout this story... It's not, it's not enough simply to worship God. It matters how we worship God. I'm going to say it again because it's just that important. It's not enough to simply worship God. It matters how we worship God. In a day and age in which everyone does what is right in their own eyes, this should not come as a surprise. In fact, if you didn't know this was from the ancient Near East, you'd think they were talking about 2019. In the day and age of moral relativity, in which you have your truth, I have my truth, and, and we're good, right? I have a guy I went to my Christian high school with, and he posts, a proud gay Christian. It's like, wait, you're claiming the name of Christ, but then you're also cl- claiming this other, what the Bible would say is a sinful thing. Like, you see the tension there, just like in the tension in this story, where Micah's mom is like, we're going to dedicate this to God and make a statue. How does that happen? Well, it happens when the spiritual condition of the people wanders so far away from God and everyone just does what is right in their own eyes. That's how it happens. There is no standard of truth. God's word is, is no longer the standard of what right looks like. You just make up whatever you want to do. Once again, it's not simply enough to worship God. It matters how we worship God. Well, we continue. Verse 7. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned. He traveled there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Oh, well, stay with me, and and be to me a father and and a priest, and I'll give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. How does that sound? And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Now, you should know, per Moses' instructions regarding Levites in Deuteronomy chapter 18, 6-9, a Levite could leave his place to travel any time to go to live in a place that God chose for him, where he could offer worship services in the name of God, like his fellow Levites, and stand before God and also be rewarded with the same gifts as other resident Levites. So that's totally okay. This young man's conduct is problem because it's going to violate those instructions in several ways. Real quick, it violates those instructions because first, this Levite 
this priest that Micah is going to hire, his intended destination is not a central shrine of God, but it's any place where he might find, really. Two, he doesn't join other Levites, but he's going to displace another unauthorized priest, Micah's son that he decided you're going to be a priest. Number three, it's a problem because he does not serve in the name of God, but he serves in the name of Micah. When you read the explanation, number four, it's a problem because he does not serve at the place of God's choosing, but at a place chosen by man. And number five, he doesn't receive the honorarium prescribed in Deuteronomy 18, 1 to 5, but simply room and board and garments agreed upon through negotiation. You don't have to remember all that, but that's going to be essential when we get to the end of the story. And so they work out this deal. Everything's good. This unnamed priest is happy and Micah's happy in fact Micah's really happy notice what it says in verse 13 then Micah said now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest that's what Micah's thinking is oh God's definitely going to bless me now right I'm going to get that car I want I'm going to get that girl I want to date or whatever like man things are looking up now all because I got this but when you understand even though Micah is totally sincere, Micah essentially has his own man-made religion. That's all this is. He's just blended the parts of paganism in with the parts of following God as an Israelite should be. And he's just made up his own religion like so many supposed Christians today who blend the parts of the Bible that they like and then ignore the other parts they don't like. Like, it reminds me of the TV show Whose Line Is It Anyways, where the questions are made up and the points don't really matter. Like, that's, that's what Mike has done. He's just made this whole thing up. Well, we shouldn't be surprised in the day and age in which everyone does what is right in their own eyes. In 2016, I was on a three-month active duty stint with the Army because I'm an Army Reserve chaplain. And uh, I was at Fort Knox. Uh, this is back when I was, I was a senior captain and I was helping train future chaplains. They call them chaplain candidates. So they would come and they would do like little internships and they'd get experience doing chaplain-like stuff. And I'd always ask chaplains questions because you don't know anything about the Army. Like as a chaplain, we'll wear a cross right here. And someone could wear a cross if they were like me or if they were a Mormon, they'd still wear a cross. Like, so there wasn't really any way to distinguish. So a common like small talk conversation, I'd be like, oh, so what's your denominational or faith background? Kind of getting to know people to filter and flush things out. And I remember talking to this young woman, and she said, oh, well, I'm United Church of Christ. And I said, oh, well, what are some, what are some unique parts of United Church of Christ? What are some things that would distinguish you? And she said, oh, we're very progressive. And I hear that word, I'm thinking, oh, well, I know where this is probably headed. And I said, well, how so? And she said, well, we're very progressive when it comes to really any type of social issue whatsoever. So you name it, we're probably very progressive. And I would say, like, abortion? She's like, yep. I'm like, LGBTQIA? She's like, yes. And so I'm thinking, how do I want to handle this? My mind is turning. And uh, I'm, it's it's always interesting because sometimes people will say, oh, well, when the Bible speaks against homosexuality, that's only an Old Testament concept. I'm like, if that's what you think, you need to have 1 Corinthians 6, 9 ready to go. You need to have Romans 1, I don't know, the whole chapter ready to go. Okay, So I bring those texts up. I say, well, 
How would you respond to someone who would say your views or values on these maybe progressive issues, they seem to kind of be at odds with the Bible in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 or Romans chapter 1. And she said, well, here's the thing you have to understand, sir. She said, you first need to understand that God is love. I'm like, I am with you right now. I can think of a Bible verse that would support that. And she said, second, you need to understand that the Bible is a sexist, racist book. I'm not kidding. That's exactly what she said. And so I'm like, well, then how do you determine what parts of the Bible that you want and what parts of the Bible you don't want, right? I'm thinking of the story right now, okay? That's why I'm telling you the story, not for entertainment purposes, but to tie this in. I said, how do you do that? How do you, how do you, I didn't want to use the word pick and choose, right? But how, how do you determine, if you're going to throw out parts of the Bible and keep other parts, how do you determine that? Isn't that rather subjective? And she said, oh, yes, it's very subjective. And I said, so there's no such thing as absolute truth at that point. And I said, would you agree? She's like, no, there's no such thing as absolute truth. And I said, but in saying that, didn't you just make an absolute statement? <laughs> the conversation ended at that point. She was actually really mad at me at that point. I was... I was, I was saying it about as kind. I was probably saying it kinder than I, what I'm saying it even right now. Like, I was, like, being very gentle, very kid gloves, because I, I really I, I wanted to know what she would say. But in a day and age in which moral relativity, right, what do you deter- how do you determine what's true? I determine what's true. I, how, why is that right and why is that wrong? Well, I, I determine that. In a day and age in which you can just make up your own version of truth, a day and age in which you can really make up your own version of religion, that's exactly what Micah has done. He's thinking, God's definitely going to bless me now. Right? I got this priest, and in my own system of religion, good things are going to come. And today, that's what people want. They want spirituality without the rules. They want spirituality, they want to feel good, and they want to be able to do whatever they want to do. They don't want to be corrected. They don't want to be told that what they're doing is wrong. And if they even get so much as a whiff of that, they're going to come down on you so hard. So hard. Some of you, maybe you saw it in the news over the last week. Drew Brees, quarterback, um, the Saints. He, he did like some little like video with focus on the family out of Colorado Springs in Colorado about bring your Bible to school day for young kids so they can live out their faith. Anyways, um, Man, he got lit up. How dare you partner with that anti-LGBTQ organization? You're blah, 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 blah. You're all, every name in the book, it just came so hard after him. Because, see, people want spirituality, but they don't want you to tell them how they should live. It's, you can be a Christian, that's fine. Just keep your mouth shut. Keep your opinions to yourself. You don't tell me. You don't tell me what you, what you think. You keep that to yourself. You can be a Christian. We won't have any problems as long as you keep your mouth shut. You got that Christian? You little bigot? Guys, you can't take that from me. You're not going to be able to take it from the outside world. So like Micah, they just make up their own religious system. It's not new here in the ancient Near East. Right? This has been happening for so long. And we can see... Happens today in 2019. Well, the story continues. It's kind of like a part two episode. Right in chapter 18. We're going to come back to these characters in a second. In those days, 18.1, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan, remember Samson? He was from the tribe of Dan. Was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. 
For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. And so the narrator shifts his focus right now to the migration of the tribe of Dan. Now, this is a little strange because there's initially a little bit of a dilemma because when you go back to Joshua chapter 19, 40 to 48, it explicitly recounts an allotment of territory actually west of Benjamin that was given to the Danites. But here it says, they don't have any land. Apparently, the land that they had been allotted back in Joshua, it's never actually come into their possession. And we know this to be true because back in Judges chapter 1, 34 to 36, one of our very first sermons in the book of the Judges, we learn that not just Dan, but a lot of the other people, they were unsuccessful in taking the land. The Amorites had repulsed them, sent them back into the hills, and they're just like, well, we'll just stay here. Apparently now they're thinking, well, we want to take, the, we want to take some land now. And so in a very almost flashback to the spies going out to spy out the land of Canaan, they send their own spies out. Verse 2, So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtael, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. And when they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice. Now, he doesn't explain how they recognized his voice It'll become clear later on. Don't read ahead. It'll spoil it. But they recognize his voice. Somehow, someway, these five spies that were sent out from the tribe of Dan, they recognize the guy, who we don't even know his name yet, that Micah hired to be his priest. They recognize his voice. The voice of a young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? Whether they, maybe they were aware of Moses' law concerning uh, priests and, and traveling, maybe that catches them off guard. But they ask him all these questions. This unnamed Levite priest that Micah hired, here's his response, verse 4. And he said to them, well, this is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. It doesn't sound like a huge deal, but once again, this is a problem because this violates God's law when it comes for Levites, when it comes for the Levitical priest. Because what he should have said is, God brought me here. He doesn't say that. See, what he should have said is, Well, to be perfectly honest, I'm instructing the people of this household in the way of God. He doesn't say that either. He should have said, I am faithfully fulfilling my calling as a priest and Levite. Doesn't say that either. In fact, this so-called priest is going to remind me a lot more of a rather opportunistic, modern-day, word-of-faith, name-it-claim-it, prosperity, gospel panhandler who is, quite frankly, it's going to be revealed as we read this, that this guy, this priest, is really just trying to make a buck. Well, verse 5, And they said to him, Well, inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are settling we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, go in peace. The journey in which you go is under the eye of the Lord. In, in fact, I think his response here were like, well, did he even inquire of God? I don't, I don't know if he inquired of God or not. He just seemingly says, okay, here's what he says. It's under the watchful eye of the Lord. They take this to be a very positive thing. They continue on their journey. Verse 7, then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there. They've got eyes on the objective right now. How they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet 
and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtael, their brothers said to them, What do you report? They said, Arise and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter and possess the land. And as soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. I mean, this is ripe for the taking. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So the 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtael and went up and encamped at Kiriath, Jerim, and Judah. On this account, that place is called Mahanadan, the camp of Dan. To this day, behold, it is west of Kiriath, Jerim, and they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Dan sends out their five guys. They go out to spy out the land. They stop at Micah's house on the way. It's there that they meet this priest. They recognize his voice. What are you doing here? They give him an explanation. They say, inquire of God. Should we continue? Is this going to be successful? Maybe he does. Maybe he doesn't. But whatever he says, they view it very positively. Not sure if they should or not. They continue. They recon this, the city, Laish. Everything checks out. They come back home. They give the report. They rally the rest of their Danites they set up camp, they're right, they're, they're near Laish, and they stop once again at Micah's house. Then the five men who had gone out to scout, who'd gone, excuse me, to scout out the, the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there is an ephod, some type of religious vestment or article of clothing, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore consider what you will do. Now the five scouts, they know what's in there. And it seems that they have very much ulterior motives. They say, hey guys, what do you think we should do? All this stuff is in there. Of course, these are pagan things, remember. It's not God-honoring things. These are pagan things. And so they pitch the idea to them. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land, went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Shh, keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth, don't say anything, and come with us. And be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be priest to a tribe and clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. And he took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So they turned, verse 21, and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. They're there. The five scouts pitch the idea. Everybody else says, yes, let's just let's take it with us. Micah says, what are you doing? The, excuse me, the priest who Micah has hired says, what are you doing? And, the, and he says, listen, don't say anything. Don't yell. Don't scream. Keep your mouth closed. Here's our offer. Come be a priest. Wouldn't it be better to be a priest to an entire tribe than just to a family? Right. I mean, think about the opportunity there. Like, would you rather be, like, the pastor of this small, little, tiny church, and, like, 
or would you rather be the pastor of this big mega church? Okay? Think about cash flow, maybe. Think about the size. Think about all those aspects. Done, right? Levi's like, check, please. Right? He is, he's ready to go. Which begins to reveal, right, the spiritual condition. And I think that's what the narrator's in, entire intention is here. Well, of course, Mike is going to find out about this. He's not going to be happy. Verse 22, when they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you, that you come with such a company? And he said, you take my gods that I made and the priest and go away and what have I have left? And then how do you ask me? What's the matter with you, right? Micah rides up on them. They're like, whoa, what's the matter with you, Micah? Micah's like, why are you asking me what's the matter with me? You stole all my stuff. I don't have anything. What? Are, you, are, you, are you guys crazy? But you can begin to see the, the narrator's anti-idolatry Polemic here. And when I say polemic, what I mean is a strong, verbal, written attack. You take my gods that I made. I made those gods. I made them. You took them. And notice, the gods made by Micah, they can't defend themselves. They, they need Micah's help to come rescue them. But that's really what the issue is, right? At the heart of this story is the idolatrous depravity that Israel has just been spiraling into. It's the story of the judges. Every cycle gets darker and darker. They get deeper and deeper into sin around them. Well, Micah's response makes sense. The Danites don't care. They tell him to shut up, verse 25. And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, right? Shut up, Micah. Lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. So keep your mouth closed, go home, so we don't kill you. Verse 26, Then the people of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. He knows that he's no match for the entire tribe. Goes home. And and the young man who first entered this story in chapter 17 as a thief now finds himself as the victim of grand larceny. The, the very objects that the Danites stole from Micah are made from the very substance that he stole from his mom at the beginning of this story. And we know that, yeah, Micah, he's behaved wickedly. And then we see God sovereignly using the more wicked Danites to punish him. Micah is a, he's a man whose own ethical and spiritual values are just clearly pagan. Totally pagan. And he finds himself the, the victim of his own Canaanized countrymen. And when I say Canaanized countrymen, that's the story of the judges. Israel is not supposed to be like the world around them, like the other Canaanites. They're supposed to be different you can make a parallel with the church. We're not supposed to be like the world around us. We're supposed to be different. And yet he now finds himself the victim of his own Canaanized countrymen. And that's the problem when you think about sin. 
And I suppose you could say all sin really is idolatrous. All of it. All, all sin is idolatrous. And, you know, I read this story. You think, oh, well, I'm not doing anything like that. This doesn't apply to me. But when you understand that all sin is ultimately a preferring of something or someone more than God, then you realize this application has infinite possibilities. Even seemingly good things can become idolatrous in our life. When we look to them to meet our needs, when we look to them to to be our everything, our satisfaction, our hope, I'm going to go on a limb and say that's a common idolatrous tendency of people who are oftentimes single is the thought of a relationship or maybe even a relationship for other people, whether it's money, whether it's a job, whether it's a house, whether it's security, like any of these things should become at any point idolatrous when we begin to look to them for them to meet our needs, to meet our satisfaction, to meet our joy, to meet our happiness, to meet our contentment. So that's the problem with sin. It's the problem with idolatry. It promises so much and then it never delivers. And that's the irony that the narrator wants us to see. It never delivers. Makes promises, never delivers. In fact, on the contrary, Micah has to deliver the idols from the Danites who stole them. It makes all sorts of promises but never delivers. And remember what he thinks is going to happen in verse 13? Back in chapter 17? Now that I have a priest, oh, the Lord's going to prosper me. Micah's got this, his own version, right? We call his own version of Christianity all worked out. Oh, God's definitely going to prosper me now. Man, I'm going to be receiving the blessings coming in. And he's got this, this entire religious system that isn't biblical. Not at all. Once again, it's great that you worship God, but it also matters that we worship God the right way. It's entirely possible to be totally sincere in your beliefs and worship God the wrong way. Like Micah, like his family, like the Danites, like Israel, like many American Christians do. Well, remember I said it was interesting that the Danite spies recognized the voice of this Levitical priest. We're about to find out just why that was so interesting. Verse 27, But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish to a people quiet and unsuspecting and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it and they named the city Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves and Jonathan, that's his name. That's the Levi priest's name that Micah hired. But how do they recognize his voice? And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses. 
Well, that's interesting. This is someone who apparently is very well-known. Well-known enough that they would have recognized his voice. And his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. To the complete surprise of the reader, at the end of the account, the Levite who first appeared that Micah hired to be the priest is finally named and your Bible might have, like in mine, a little superscript next to Moses, and it might say Manasseh here at the bottom. I thought this was fascinating. The New American Commentary writes, and I quote, The rabbinic scribes found the present association of Moses' name with such abominable, idolatrous behavior so objectionable, they actually refused to accept this statement, transforming it from Moses to Manasseh. This guy is supposed to be a man of God. He's a charlatan. And that's precisely the goal the narrator has. His goal is to show the reader how far spiritually the nation has gone. The symptoms of the spiritual breakdown have now even infected the priestly class and tribe as a whole. And he shocks us, associating the abominations committed in this chapter with Moses, his grandson. And then that's the problem of this religious syncretism, this blending of different religions together. It has now infected the most sacred institutions, the most revered household. It's crazy to think these events probably happened within about a hundred years of the Israelites' arrival to the land. A hundred years. And look where they're at now. Not obeying God, not walking with God, not serving God, totally faithless. And then he, I think he makes a really important point. If you come back to verse 30, Jonathan and then all his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. No doubt here a, a reference to the, the day to the captivity of the land that would take place around 722 B.C. by Tiglath Pileser III, the Assyrian king. That's, that's the point that he makes this reference. Jonathan, all his sons, they're going to be priests here for a while until the time of the captivity. The captivity of the north. And, and to understand the significance of that, you need to understand the the breakdown, how Israel is going to look. Israel's going to look in such a way where King David comes, then King Solomon, and after King Solomon, we have his son, Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the scriptures tell us, he did not listen to the advice of the older, wiser men around him, but instead listened to the advice of the foolish men around him, and did not take into consideration the request the people made, and so he says, no way to the people's answer of making their load lighter. And as a result, the ten northern tribes are fractured. They break off at that point. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, he holds control of the southern kingdom, which is Judah and Benjamin. Benjamin will be absorbed into Judah. He retains control over that. But the ten northern tribes all break away, making Jeroboam their king. And so this reference to the captivity historically will affect the northern Israel, the northern ten tribes, in 722. Historically, we know 
586, that's the big captivity for Judah. Down the road. But that's his point here in making this reference. They were the priests serving until the time of the captivity. The narrator's reference to the captivity thus serves as a warning. It's a warning to the reader. It's a warning to us today. Citing what will become their eventual fate. If the policies continue, the same fate that will await the nation of Israel will happen to Judah. If they don't change, if they don't turn, if they don't repent, they can expect the same thing to happen. That's the narrator's point. It's not simply enough to worship God. It matters how we worship God. And you cannot have true worship without right belief. You can't. You cannot have true worship without right belief. You can be totally sincere. You can be. Like Micah, like his mom. Let's dedicate this to God and make a pagan statue. No doubt they're totally sincere and yet totally pagan. To have true worship, you have to have right belief. So how do you have right belief? See this book in my hand? What does God's word say? In the day and age in which everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Even the Levites here, including the descendants of Moses, they've been corrupted. They've been corrupted. Remember this guy, one of the members at Lynchburg City Church, he He's since moved away now. But I remember he came. He said, I brought a friend with me to the service. I said, oh, well, did your friend enjoy it? He said, no. <laughs> I said, why not? He's like, he didn't like you. <laughs> Story of my life. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, what did he not like? He said, he didn't like what you said. Specifically, he comes from a church where the pastor is very, very encouraging and, and just, it's, it's, it's just really, it's always just so positive. And he said, you just talked about sin the whole time and the needing to repent of sin. Fair enough. So here's Jonathan, right? This guy that Micah hires, Moses' grandson. And instead of, instead of calling the people to repentance, we call this professional spiritual leader, Instead of saying, Micah, you want to hire me? No, first of all, I can't. And bottom line, this stuff that you're doing, not wrong. Excuse me, it is wrong. You can't be doing that. You've made these pagan statues. You've got these pagan emblems that you guys are worshiping along with God. You think God's impressed? You would hope that he would say that. He doesn't say that. Rather, he uses the opportunity to capitalize on the degeneracy of the times. That's what Jonathan does. That's why I call him a charlatan. That's why the rabbinic writers were so shocked at this. This is Moses' grandson? No. Only a hundred years have passed. And he's supposed to be like a spiritual leader. Carl Lentz comes and speaks at Liberty. I didn't know who Carl Lentz was. I was like, oh, he, he knows Justin Bieber. Well, that's cool. And uh, I'm listening to Al Mohler, president of 
Southern Seminary. I listen to his podcast, The Briefing, just about every day. Highly recommend it. And this was after he spoke at Liberty. But he commented on, on Carl Lentz, and I'm learning. I didn't really, like I said, I didn't know who he was. So he's talking about how an interview Carl Lentz had where they asked him about social issues, you know, abortion, LGBTQIA stuff. And so what, what would you tell someone? He said, well, it's not my job to tell anyone what they should think or believe. At which point Al Mohler said, if you're not willing to tell people what you think or believe, like, you don't have a church at that point. Let that sink in for a second. Like, let alone a pastor. You don't have a church at that point if you're not willing to tell people what they should think or believe. And I don't mean, like, Joe's opinion, right? What's your, what, what, what hockey team should I cheer for, right? Not talking about that, okay? Which should be the Rangers, but not talking about that. <laughs> What should we think or believe about what? About what the Word of God says. So Al Mohler, I mean, he just, boom, nailed it. And I'm like, wow, that's true, right? Like, if, if a church doesn't tell people what they should think or believe about the Bible, you don't have a church. You have a motivational speaker, that's all. And I'm not just talking about even the pastor, like the church, the people of God. If, if we don't tell people what they should, or th- should think or believe, what the Bible says... We don't have a church, guys. We don't. Jesus says, go and make disciples. How do you go and make disciples? Teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you, right? This isn't Joe saying this. This is Jesus saying this. And we should probably listen when Jesus says to do something directly. Just really good advice. I've learned. If the policies continue, the narrator is drawing this out, the same fate that happened to Israel in the north will happen to Judah. If they don't change, if they don't turn, if they don't repent, they can expect the same thing. And here's the one guy, Moses' grandson. Maybe, maybe he'll have the courage to say what needs to be said. Of course, he doesn't. He seems to be more interested in the prestige and making a buck. Young man goes to Princeton Seminary. Princeton Seminary in New Jersey, very, uh, very, very liberal school. Didn't used to be. Uh, one of my favorite Bible teachers, John Piper, his hero is Jonathan Edwards, who was the president and is actually buried there at Princeton Seminary. He's buried there. I'm thinking like, thinking parallels right now of people that are buried at s- schools. And uh, so... A young man goes to Princeton Seminary, super excited. He wants to go into full-time ministry. He's uh, made a friend. Very first week of class, everything's going well. Second week of class, professor comes in. He says, how many of you in here believe in God? The young man, of course, shoots his hand up in the air. But then he realizes only about half his classmates have their hand in the air, including his new friend sitting next to him. He's, he's shaken. After class, he, he asks his new friend, he says, I saw you didn't have your hand up when the professor asked whether or not we believed in God. He says, well, well I don't believe in God. He said, well, I don't understand. Like, well, why are you here at seminary? He said, oh, because well, there's a lot of money to be made in this God business. That's Jonathan. And that's what's so troubling about this story. That and the fact it occurs about a hundred years after the time of Moses. 
to this story besides illustrating the, the, the depths of the sin among the people of God, it also serves as a warning to the people of God that we would not bow to the cultural idols of our day, regardless of what form or appearance they may take in society or even in our own personal lives. This story is an encouragement. This story is an encouragement to the people of God amidst a world that would offer you to find sex or money or relationships or whatever other pleasure better, more satisfying than God. In a day and age when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, this story here is a call for the people of God to be different, to be unpopular, to stay true, to stay faithful to God because He is better than anything that the world could offer us. He is more satisfying. He is more glorious. He is more beautiful than anything. Oh, do you see him that way? I want you to see him that way, right? I don't want you to see him as like a boring, rehearsed Sunday school story. He's so much more than that. He is. And the thing is, I can't make that happen for you. There's no switch to turn on. Some of you, maybe you're being honest and you're like, truthfully, when I think of the cross, when I think of what God did for me, it's boring. I know it shouldn't be, but it is. What advice would you give to me? I'd say, pray. Pray. God, I don't want this book to be just words on a page. It's the most exciting story ever told. I want it to be more than that. Because it is. Because you are. I don't want to go down this road that they're on, making their own version of Christianity up. I want to be faithful and true. I want to be unpopular. Bottom line, if you want to be a Christian in 2019, you are volunteering to be unpopular, folks. You are. But he's worth it. Oh, he's worth it. And a million times over. So you pray. And you ask him. You ask him, God, I need you to be more, more satisfying, more glorious, more beautiful than anything this world has to offer me, that this world might seduce me by and pull me away from you. As the team comes, I want to pray for us today, guys. We love you, God, because you first loved us. That's it. That's the only reason. We love you because you first loved us. That's a statement right there. Lord, I, I pray that you would become increasingly more beautiful and more satisfying to us. Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage to live as a people set apart. It's harder and harder. Every year, it's harder and harder. This, the, the, this world we live in, Lord, becomes increasingly paganized. It's hard, God, and we need your help to be a people set apart. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be true. Help us to be loyal. Lord, help us to be obedient to you. God, encourage our hearts to live, to live as your people should live. Help us. We need you. Of course, we always do, but we really, really need you, God. Thank you for saving us, Lord.
for rescuing us. Thank you, God, for dying on the cross for us. It's hard, Lord, but we know at the end of the day it's worth it. So help us, God, to live our lives in such a way that we make it count for things of eternal significance. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.